The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Film Jitsu, the podcast that wields films as deadly weapons. We're your hosts... I am Jay. And I am Mike. On this episode, Mike's getting spiritual, or maybe existential, as he gives us his opinion on the no-budget 2013 flick, I Am a Ghost. After that, we'll rattle off our bottom five no-low-budget cheapo flicks and offer up a couple staff picks before Mike seeks revenge by revealing what I'm going to have to watch for our next show. But first... We've got The Curious Case of I Am a Ghost, a movie which the director, H.P. Mendoza, himself calls a, quote, experiment. Let's have a listen to the trailer. Yes, Mike, there is a trailer. There's not a trailer. You're making There is a trailer. I died right here in a pool of my own blood. This Halloween, see the award-winning film that has swept over a dozen top ten lists worldwide and the winner of three Best Picture Awards. I Am A Ghost, a film by H.P. Mendoza. So, Mike, I assigned you a little extra homework for this episode as I really wanted you to watch David Lowry's 2017 movie, A Ghost Story. That flick is a critical darling of a picture. It sports a 91% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and it garnered a universal acclaim rating at Metacritic. It's a weird flick, for sure. Most known for the simple costume design employed for the title apparition, uh, a bed sheet worn by actor Casey Affleck. A truly low-budget movie made for $100,000 by a fairly well-known director framed with rounded corners around a 133 to 1 aspect ratio that sports as shouldn't work, but it does concept. When I saw it, it blew me away, and I love the ideas and the feelings it brought up in me. Now, your actual assignment, I Am a Ghost, was something that I just recently caught one night on the streaming service Shudder. And it, too, surprised me, mostly because I kept seeing similarities between it and a ghost story. And I couldn't understand why someone would attempt to sort of redo Lowry's flick, but with more of a like a mystery horror tilt. So imagine my surprise when I discovered that I Am a Ghost with its round frame corners, single location, repetitious actions, and larger themes about existence predates Lowry's movie by four years. So, Mike, what did you think of these two movies? Because I really, I gave you two to watch. <laughs> it's like the worst kind of film jitsu trick ever. And, and are they a pair by design, or is this just a great coincidence in the world of cinema? I think that we're dealing with probably coincidence Maybe a little serendipity, but this was such an intriguing assignment to me because never before had I expected that I would be set up to do what is presumably a bad film jitsu movie. And you're like, by the way, the homework leading into this is this critically acclaimed darling. And this was actually really great, Jay, because I hadn't watched a ghost story yet, even though it has been on my radar in a serious way since it came out and I just never made the time for it. And so you finally put me to the task and I was forced to sit down with it. And I was so glad that I did because oh. I, I, I wasn't sure you were really good in setting it up for me. 
<laughs> I wasn't sure what your motivation was. I was like, does Jason hate this yeah. movie? Does Jason yeah. love this movie? I didn't know what you wanted from me going into it. And I have <laughs> to tell you that I fell in love with a ghost story. Yeah. I thought it was amazing. To, to be fair, I wasn't expecting anything from you. I also had absolutely no idea what you were going to say. I think ghost story is polarizing. I really do. There are people who absolutely will not watch this sure. movie. Yep. So I found it really intriguing. I, I found it really original in voice. And then years later, I see this other flick. I am a ghost. And I, for me, I was like, what the hell is happening here? What did you think about I am a ghost? <laughs> that was really your assignment. It was. I did not go for I am a ghost. Ah. But especially after having watched Ghost Story the way that I did. Oh. Now, here's the thing. I wonder what I would have felt like had I watched it in the opposite order. You really kind of mm. set I Am a Ghost up for failure by making me watch a movie as absolutely, from start to finish in every aspect, well-conceived, well-executed, yeah. gorgeously rendered as yeah. David Lowry's A Ghost Story. A movie that yeah. grabbed me in the first 10 minutes. That's a movie where the first 10 minutes do all the heavy lifting. You have to buy into a relationship between two characters immediately because the premise of the entire movie is going to seem like a dumb gimmick if you don't. And True. a ghost story succeeds monumentally to me in doing that in the beginning. I was invested in these characters. I cared about their relationship. And so I never saw the bed sheet thing as a gimmick or, or laughable. <laughs> right. Although there are a couple yeah. of moments where it is mined a little bit for humor. And this is really saying something because sure. the lead actor is behind a bed sheet the whole time. <laughs> it, what we get is this ghost traveling sort of through time in their own interesting way stuck in yeah. a place observing what has happened as the world moves on and they're stuck there and those are all similar things to what i am a ghost is doing sure yeah but i am a ghost fails almost from its outset because it doesn't tell me what's going on early enough for me to care about this one character she doesn't mm -hmm. have another relationship we just see her kind of groundhog daying through her routine over and over and over again and it's kind of got your mm -hmm. head scratching and so there was no emotional hook to i am a ghost for me whatsoever oh wow look i expected this is why it's a film jitsu movie mm. first and foremost i expected you not to like it yep. i was hoping somewhat we might have one of these very rare almost I don't know if it's ever really happened, <laughs> but one of these, well, I mean, I kind of love time cops, so I guess, but, <laughs> but I mean, uh, I was sort of hoping to surprise both of us with, I am a ghost. Cause I was very surprised. I know that it's rough around the edges. It's a cheaply made movie. Whereas Lowry's cost a hundred thousand. This one costs 10. Yeah. We're talking about bottom of the barrel budget here, but I felt like the ideas were so interesting and so original in the way that repetitive you know, they walk the razor's edge there with the repetition at the beginning to the point where you think you might shut it off. Absolutely, yeah. She repeats the whole day over and over again. Yeah. She, she cooks her egg. She cries in the kitchen. Yeah. It's what yeah. I imagine my high school gym teacher's life was like, just sitting alone <laughs> in a house, crying a lot day after day after day. <laughs> Maybe if it was about your high school gym teacher, we it would have been a better movie for you. <laughs> it could have had a more creative title than I Am a Ghost, which is factually correct, I guess. Not, not especially inventive. But well, the first 14 minutes of the film, there's no score. There's no dialogue. And I almost wish it had stayed that way because once the plot kicks in, the movie yeah. goes to me from dull but interesting 
to <laughs> stupid. And I think that's oh. that's where it happened for me. Emily oh. starts hearing. Emily is the main character. She's the only character we have in this movie that we meet face to face. But she starts talking to the voice of Sylvia, a psychic who is mm-hmm. connected with her and wants to help set Emily free from the house. We don't ever see Sylvia. She's a disembodied voice in Emily's head. Right. Again, <laughs> kind of a neat idea that I think if it had been executed differently, yes, could have been interesting. We'll talk more about it. I hate to kind of lead with the, my summary here, but yeah, <laughs> I have to tell you that I Am a Ghost is so far the movie I have enjoyed the least in all sure. of our film jitsu, but not in an yeah. angry way. When I tell you that I actually thought you were being a really clever and devious son of a bitch with this movie because (laughs) I think you'll remember me saying, oh, wow, this thing's only like 86 minutes longer. It's really short. And I thought, thought, wow, this is okay. This is a quick breeze. It might be 75 minutes now that I think about it. It is real short. It's Yeah, it's very, very short This movie, movie yeah. took me longer to watch than any other movie we've done so far because I kept falling asleep. and having to <laughs> Including sleep. Out of Africa. Absolutely, <laughs> it, it took me longer to watch this than it did Out of Africa. That's not a joke because I would watch it. It would dull me to sleep. I fell asleep. I woke up. But because it's just repeating, I had no idea where I was in the movie. So I'd have to backtrack forever. And start over because it's all the same thing over. Yeah, over I could. Again. I was like, "Am I? Have I been asleep for two minutes? Have I been asleep for that twenty minutes? Devious. I don't know." And so I really thought I was like, "Oh, this is what Santa was doing." He actually, <laughs> it, this was like death by boredom. And so, oh my God, as I much wish. as I, I can't say that I got worked up about this movie, and I don't want to cuss <laughs> you out about the movie. I have enjoyed this movie far less than I enjoyed anything else because sure. there wasn't enough for me to get worked up about. I have to give it credit Mm -hmm. for having the audacity of its premise. And the same thing with a ghost story. It takes a set to say that this is the movie I'm going to give you. One character in a ghost story, they literally give you a bed sheet. Here, Emily is wearing uh, what is essentially the Seinfeld puffy shirt. And I think that's how we're supposed to know she's a ghost. (laughs) But we get a lot of hard cuts in the beginning there's some interesting things going on with the camera and some of the lens choices. Yeah. There's almost a, a fish eye lens and, and some tilting shots that do put you off balance. So there's some purposeful use of mirrors in a lot of the scenes that I think is a visual language. The film does a decent job of communicating. Yeah, it's doing some foreshadowing of what's going to come later on yeah. too, with the multiple versions of her. And yeah, where this movie really goes wrong. If it had stuck with its premise that Emily is a ghost... <laughs> You could have had an interesting movie. They could have they could have found a way to bring it home. I would have actually liked them to follow through with what they had set up. Sure. I think what happened was the director of this film, I, I believe writer-director, H.P. Uh, Mendoza, yeah. had the misfortune of probably watching an M. Night Shyamalan movie before in his life <laughs> and felt as though he were obligated <laughs> he at some point to have a twist that this movie didn't need. Because what happens is we are it is revealed to us by Sylvia, the voice of the psychic, that Emily was not murdered in this mm-hmm. house and is not a ghost stuck in this house, but actually, and I, I had to write some of this down because it was important enough to get it right in its explanation. Mm-hmm. She committed suicide in the house, but we find out that Emily as a child was diagnosed with dementia, a special mm-hmm. kind of dementia, disassociative mm-hmm. identity disorder, also known as multiple personality disorder. You would have short spells where you were violent and inhumane. Which mm-hmm. it's 
to put a line in a screenplay, short spells where you were violent and inhumane, and then not to cut that <laughs> out, and then to actually have it in the final edit. I was like, what are we doing here? <laughs> that was such kind of a mishmash of like psycho babble nonsense. Yeah, 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 yeah. It all kind of devolves into this idea that Emily is trapped in the house with mm-hmm. her other personality. And Which then, is sort of like demonic. The, oh, yeah. yeah, demonic. We're straight out of James <laughs> Wan's central casting. We get yeah, almost like completely. this. We get this naked, mm-hmm. Ringu, bare-assed man yeah. who starts chasing her around the house, waving his yeah. wiener around and violently attacking her with what yeah. I assume is a ghost knife. And so he's chasing her, he's stabbing her, and she gets away, kind of. And then that's the end of the movie. Yeah, it kind of, it, it peters out at the end, and I think that... <laughs> no look, pun intended, I mean, but yeah. It, it really, for, <laughs> we get about 10 minutes where this movie peters out, and she's... There's a lot just, of petering. He's just chasing her around the house with it, and and I'm thinking, like, what is, what are we supposed to get here? Sylvia yeah, goes away, yeah, yeah, the psychic yeah. character just goes away. There could have almost been, a, like, a Zelda Rubenstein in Poltergeist, if there had been yeah. kind of a Tangina angle with this psychic that didn't even necessarily have to be in the room... That would have sure. been something. Yeah. What I would say is I don't think that David Lowry saw this movie, crafted his movie based on this movie. I don't think there's any kind of ripoff sure. going on. Are some of the technical similarities interesting? Sure. Yeah. I, I don't know if they're uh, damning in any way to say you can point a finger and say Lowry ripped off this movie. It's, just, it's very coincidental. It's sure. a very strange yeah. coincidence. I still think that Lowry's is a very original vision. I think that I Am a Ghost had a lot of original vision to it. I don't think it had the resources. It didn't have the story craft, right? It lacked I think the emotion. That it, that was, it, it, that's, well, that's where I lost it for me. A ghost story was a movie that grabbed me and really moved me emotionally. I felt my feelings through that whole movie. and I think it was more relatable, sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a love story at the central, the, sure. at the center of the movie that yeah. this thing just did never have. This was just a woman stuck in a house and I didn't know why. And so yeah. she didn't really have a, this sense of grief for some past life. It might have been in the screenplay, but it wasn't in the movie. If that makes any mm. sense, you know, I never felt yeah. this movie at all. And so what I, what I came away with after watching both of these things is it almost felt to me like I am a ghost was sort of a, a proof of concept for a ghost story. Correct. That, yes. that you're like, what if we, what if we made a really great movie and this is kind of the elevator pitch. We're going to get rid of all this horror movie nonsense. Right, exactly. The the evil, violent spirit running around. We don't need a psychic character. In a ghost story, when the ghost is looking out the window to the house across the way and sees another ghost, (laughs) and they have this moment, and it's hard to explain to somebody that hasn't seen the movie because there is no visual expression. I know. But there's almost this... You feel it. You feel it in a way that... (laughs) in, In a way that I am a ghost never stood a chance of moving me sure. that way. Sure. Yeah, no, I get you. I think that there's a lot of representational symbolism that resonates with us. I think it puts us under the sheet in many bit. respects. A little bit. You know, yeah. and I think that and I think that I am a ghost tries to as well, but I do think that its shortcomings are its production budget and some of its writing for sure. But I mean Sylvia is awful. Like whoever was doing the voice is so bad that it's pa- it's actually painful to listen to that person talk, and it, it kind of ruins the movie. It honestly. really it really ruins the movie for me because one of the things that everybody's going to learn about me in this episode of Film Jitsu is I'm an incredibly forgiving person when it comes to 
no budget cinema because I yep. am I was a no budget cinema person. So this is a really important point that I wanted to find a way to make during the episode. And I thank you for setting me up for it. <laughs> I want to say this. I do want to say this. Movies are so hard to get made and so much goes into them that I cannot sit here and slag H.P. Mendoza right. for I am a ghost because that guy made his movie, yeah. you know, yeah. and I think that's important. And I think that's kind of important. We don't talk about that enough in film jitsu no. because, you know, we, we goof on bad movies and you know what? We don't have to be forgiving for the time cops of the world no, necessarily. They but made their money. <laughs> I have been to a lot of very small film festivals where writer directors who made their movie on a credit card, this is their passion project. This is their life. It might be their one shot. They are thrilled that their movie got screened and that there were 15 people in the room. And that really gets me amped up. That really gets me excited. And the thing I will say for I am a ghost is that I could tell that this movie was something that this guy worked really hard to make and he got out in the world and I've never done that. Yeah. So many people never do that. And I think it's important as we joke about low budget. I cinema. agree. And that's why I didn't want to come in here and blast this guy's movie because if I'm being fair, right. I have to look at this movie on its own merits and in the world of low budget cinema, if I move right. a ghost story out of my brain, sure. this is really well done yeah. compared to a lot of the other stuff that I've seen. I agree completely. Is it perfect? No. Right. Do all the performances work? No. Mm -hmm. And that is true of most low budget I've seen. Right. What I will say is there's nothing about I Am A Ghost that the writer director should be embarrassed about it right. was a valiant effort that i think failed in more ways than it succeeded but this movie exists i watched it it's on shutter yeah and we're talking about that's it. right that's a victory for and, this movie and i'm actually i'm actually uttering it in the same breath as a ghost story i find it very interesting these movies do feel like a pair and the whole idea of lowry's movie being like ghost stuck in a loop or something like that i feel like there's something sort of weirdly unattainable about the loop that these two movies form <laughs> that there's some sort of larger loop that they form i'm probably stretching way too much into it but i think that it, it's worth a watch for me i sit on the end of saying to people who are really maybe perhaps not familiar with the no budget arena and who mm -hmm. want to see something really different give it a shot Give it a shot. Like we said, it's not perfect by any stretch. It's easier for me because I was years separated between a ghost story and I am a ghost. You were days, if not a week, a, a right? Week. A week, a week. <laughs> so yep. I mean, you had you had it very fresh. You had a what mm -hmm. I think was one of the most impressive, interesting major cinema releases. It wasn't a major release, I guess that's an overstatement. But I mean, Lowry certainly an A list director at this point, and. I think it was one of the most interesting movies that's been released in quite a long time. And I, I just, this made me think a lot about it. Yeah, I can see that. A Ghost Story was a movie that I think the sheer force of will for a screenplay to have so little dialogue, not as a gimmick, but as a fundamental necessity yeah. of the emotional experience mm -hmm. is really powerful and impressive of course i think if you gotta only watch one of these two <laughs> i would say really be moved by a ghost story sure i think when people think no budget they think low quality yes i think that i am a ghost is really more indie film than what i would say is low budget 
even though maybe that's just my own personal interpretation <laughs> of the two, you know? Sure. I see, when I hear no budget, I often think of things like trauma or exploitation yeah, or exactly. that kind of thing. Yeah. And not, not a movie that tries to be about something, whether it succeeds or fails. I, th- I want to draw attention to the fact that these two were being paired up because nobody has said yeah. anything about these two. I don't know if they just cater to completely different audiences or what, but... I found it really, really worth putting them together, and I hope that you sure. you agreed. I think that my experience of falling asleep during I'm a Ghost, I think it told me a lot about what I wasn't enjoying about the movie, but it also didn't make me give up on it as just a hokey premise. Mm. Because when I saw A Ghost Story and its premise wasn't hokey, no. I was like, yeah. okay, so I shouldn't write I Am a Ghost off right. from the get-go. Right. Like, it can be done. I've seen it, so I'm going to give this thing a chance. So, Mike, our discussion about I Am a Ghost really set up my bottom five very, very well because I wanted to introduce the listeners of Film Jitsu with a little bit about this little area of the enormous film world, this no-budget arena that we're sort of discussing here. And to most people, almost everything under a certain budget is unwatchable, whether because of amateurish acting or poor cinematography, crap sets, slapdash editing, non-existent direction, horrifically inept writing. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot most moviegoers wouldn't find palatable about low or no-budget cinema. This is largely because people are used to movies made for millions upon millions of dollars. There's a certain level of inherent competence that comes with that amount of money. I used to call it cinematic grammar, but essentially movies that hit theaters typically follow a rhythmic pattern. They have shots composed in a certain way and they generally feel like, I don't know, like quote real movies. Mm -hmm. So when they watch even five minutes of a no budget flick made for thousands perhaps even hundreds of dollars, they say things like, my kids could do better than this, or this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. For several years, I was part of a micro-budget shot-on-video revolution, and let me tell you, there are plenty of terrific flicks made with next to no money or professional resources. In fact, I would go as far to say that when you watch as much stuff as I have that was made on a thread of a shoestring budget, You start to get very forgiving of the technical deficiencies, the line fumbles, and the poor camera placement. And instead of kicking these movies while they're down, you start noticing what it is they did right and applauding them for it, which was certainly what I was doing with I Am a Ghost, I think. When you have an eye toward forgiveness, making a list of the worst cheapo movies is super challenging. And what it all comes down to for me is intention. My list is all about the dearth of any real artistic merit and instead the full-on embrace of making a quick buck. So unlike many of our previous bottom five lists, I've said a lot up front, so I'll have to say relatively little about these cinematic turds loosed from a bunch of assholes who either lost their artistic integrity or simply had none to begin with. So with all that said, Mike... What was your take on all this? Because I know it was probably nothing like mine. (laughs) 
I will have to say it was different, but the lesson learned, and I'm a little proud of us, was we went through I Am a Ghost without beating up on it, right? Right, right. Nobody wants to beat up on the little guy. Right. And the thing that I found hard about this was exactly what you're talking about. This is going through, I didn't just want to dump on people that had really tried. What I tried to do was populate my list maybe with some bigger titles, more well-known titles that were still pretty low budget and I think definitely ended up being pretty crap. And so yeah. we will get into sure, those. Sure. I wanted to not come across as a bully yes. in this effort. So I yeah. think we were on the same page We definitely that. were. But what I really knew, this is your sweet spot. This is where you live and breathe. And so I'm a lot more interested in your list than my list. So I want to hear what you have given that whole big setup for your, your number five. My number five is the entire bikini bloodbath series. I don't know if you've ever heard of bikini bloodbath. Yes, there's more than one of something called bikini bloodbath. And no, you don't ever need to watch any of them. They're basically just shot in people's houses, around their kitchen tables. They've got unlikable characters who can't act. You would think there would be a lot of bikini or nudity or exploitation or smut in this. There isn't. It's just, it's just really terrible humor. I don't know if there's a script. I'm not even sure if there was a script or anything involved with that. It's from these dudes in Connecticut that named Jonathan Gorman and Thomas Edward Seymour, who did almost nothing other than this. Their company was, of course, called Bloodbath Pictures. They're almost impossible to actually sit through all the way through. I have seen three of them, including... <laughs> I think, so they're impossible to sit through, but I, I but I've I watched all three more times. Yes, <laughs> several times. No, <laughs> but bikini bloodbath. There's B bikini bloodbath car wash, and then I think there was bikini bloodbath Christmas. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because there's somebody that I know and I really like in the movies named Debbie Rashawn. She's an actress out of New York. Uh, works in a lot of like trauma and stuff like that, and is sure. she she's making a buck. She's a working actress, you know, but. Oof. These are really, really bad. There's just no merit to anything that's happening. It sounds like this falls in, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's this segment of low-budget cinema where the whole thing is the title. Yeah, oh like, yeah, sure. Like, yeah. like you've come up with a funny title, and you didn't actually have to make the movie. Kind of a, like, surf Nazis must die. It's like, yeah. you came up with a title there. Yeah. That was kind of enough, like... You've won yeah. the title contest. You didn't actually have to make a movie based on it. Yeah, totally. Sometimes a title is just as good as the movie. Not the case with Bikini Bloodbath. And we're kind of seeing a renaissance with that right now with all the Sharknados and oh, Velocipasters. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. all. I have no interest in any of that. Like the, if the title is the gag, I'm good. Yeah, it, absolutely. It's, it's just there to make a buck. Well, my number five uh, is on my list in this five spot because... It has the biggest budget of any of my picks. I almost ordered my list in order of budget. <laughs> you might say that at $145,000, it doesn't qualify as low budget. No, it, does. it definitely doesn't qualify as micro budget, but at least not the way that you intended. Yeah. But for me, this one's a matter of scale because the director's follow-up had a budget of $6.5 million. First film, $145,000, wow. $6.5 million. Jesus. After that, the next film was budgeted at 18.5 million combine combine those two films grossed 123 million dollars but i'm not here to talk about the terminator and aliens i'm oh. here to talk about james cameron's feature debut piranha, piranha 2, 2 yeah the spawning nice 
I now, like that I'm movie. Being a, yeah, I'm being a little disingenuous <laughs> okay, right, in my setup say. because <laughs> the production of this severely shit movie was a disaster. Yeah. And directing was mostly overtaken by the producer, uh, a video Asantius, I think is his name, <laughs> an Italian guy. But wow, does the production nightmare show in the outcome? Sure. <laughs> Piranha 2 has hand puppet piranhas yeah. like snippety snappy sock puppet piranhas um it has some kind of idiotic genetically engineered for vietnam plotline and almost criminally bad performances by trisha o'neill as kim the diving instructor as best i can tell part two has nothing to do with joe dante's original piranha no it's just bad all the way around yeah. but i had to put it on my list because the story the <laughs> Piranha 2, the spawning, then being followed by the Terminator know, and Aliens. I know. It's an amazing, it's like a, it's an amazing story of, of why perhaps you shouldn't write somebody off based on their low budget effort. Sure. Yeah. I definitely have a sweet spot for turkeys, right? I think we do. Otherwise we wouldn't be hosting a show called Film Jitsu. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and, and I think one of the turkeys that I do enjoy watching because of the poor production value, because of the bad performances. I mean, sometimes you really revel in this. Sometimes you revel in the exploitation. If it has the right caliber of silliness sort of applied to it which i felt piranha 2 does i think it <laughs> well and really based on what i'm hearing is that the director was this asshole italian producer right. and not, not really, really james, james cameron. cameron yeah that's true i've heard that rumor i still think he he takes ownership over it he, he does now yeah but it's an example of why i didn't want to just pick on the little guy i think i like that what's cool here is that you and I really, our friendship started over the turkeys, Bud the Chud. We sort of love these yeah, movies. And exactly. so that's why yeah. that's why I'm not here to pick on the yeah. little guy. So I think that James Cameron can take one on the chin. And I think that there's something that we love about exploitation. And, but I think, again, you just need to look at the intention. When you see exploitation now, it's kind of it's just kind of gross. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not just a yep. thing. It's kind of like what is at number four on my list which is Anything by filmmaker Jim Wynorski under the pseudonyms of H.R. or Harold Blueberry, Sam Pepperman, or Salvador Ross. So this guy has, I can't, I don't know how many different names he makes movies under, but you've got things like The Lusty Busty Barbecue, Cleavage Field, The Devil Wears Nada. <laughs> These Sick, are like Spinal Tap songs. Sexy Wives, Sensations, The Pleasure Spa. Then he took the shark thing and he's got Shark Kansas Women's Prison Massacre. He had the Witches of Breastwick and Busty Cops 1 and 2 and I think 3. I could go on and on. None of them are watchable. They're all they're all pretty much starring porn stars. They have no story to really speak of. What's kind of funny is he always sort of reuses the same actors over and over and over again. It feels like he's made one of these each week. He just brings people up to his house in the California hills. They all get naked. They simulate sex. It, that's really what makes up 90% of these movies. Are, are you sure you're not talking about pornography? Yeah, right. I know. I know. <laughs> it I sounds know. like maybe this might be pornography no, it, and you didn't, you didn't well, know Well, it that. stars porn stars. You know, it's it, it's sold to, it used to be sold to like late night Skinamax, but then they got rid of mm -hmm. that. And, you know, late night HBO, stuff like that. They're designed for a purpose. It's just a purpose that I find really unseemly. And it's sort of pretending to be something that it isn't. It's pretending to be a comedy frequently with these silly names and stuff like that. But ultimately, it's just really bad simulated sex by people who don't really look like they're having a hell of a lot of fun in this quote unquote comedy. So after a while, you have to start thinking about the intentions. And you know, what, do, what, do you, yeah. what itch are you scratching here? 
and it's kind of gross. It exactly. It's kind of gross. Yeah, it's kind of it gross. sounds kind of gross. Yeah. Well, my number four is uh, certainly not pornography. <laughs> I'm sure of that. But it's a little tricky because I'm not actually sure what the budget was. Uh, but I couldn't possibly put together a list of schlocky garbage and not mention the incomparable Mr. Brian Usna. The oh, wow. director, producer of classics like Bride of Reanimator and Society. You love Society. Which comes up on this podcast <laughs> way more than I ever would have imagined. But he also directed my pick here, Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, Four. <laughs> Initiation. Uh, which was a direct-to-video catastrophe <laughs> in a series that was never really on the rails to begin with, if we're being honest here. This one was so far off the rails. Like, it's almost a Halloween 3 of the franchise, but not in a good way. <laughs> it abandons the Christmas theme almost entirely. It has nothing to do with the Billy Ricky story of the rest of the franchise. Some fucking how, it's about a woman investigating witches? The only instance I can think of in film history where a giant larva is inserted into the protagonist's vagina <laughs> and she gives birth to a giant cockroach through her mouth. Mm. Do I need to say any more than that? What, this is a Christmas something or other? I don't know. <laughs> it's it, This is something. I love Silent Night, Deadly Night, the first one. The second one is crazy yeah. because it's almost a clip show of the first Yeah, one. yeah. It's like a and, replay. And then three and four go absolutely bananas. But Deadly Night initiation, whoa. I don't know what the budget is, but I cannot imagine... That, that it was a whole heck of a lot. And I, I couldn't leave a guy like Brian Usna off the list. <laughs> He's an interesting guy. He's made her a lot of... Say. The movie that I think a lot of people like out of him is uh, Return of the Living Dead 3. He did the <laughs> another one that's sort of like an offshoot from a series, but yeah. it's pretty well regarded, you know, and so he... He's had his things, you know, the reanimator stuff and whatnot. I mean, he didn't, he directed, I think, Beyond Reanimator. He helped out on um, on the original reanimator directed by Stuart Gordon and stuff. So I like Yuzna. I think he's an interesting dude. I, yeah, was, I, do, I, I wasn't crazy about society. You like it. I, I didn't. I, I couldn't watch it. It was a. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a time capsule movie. That's a struggle, man. <laughs> it's a struggle. <laughs> My next one, look, I, at this point, I'm just following a theme, and I could probably just go through three and two at the same time if you want me to, because, go for you know, it. just about every movie that's been made by New Jersey Seduction Cinema also follows the same pattern of these Jim Wynorski, H.R. Blueberry movies, except with Seduction Cinema, you've got women that aren't even porn stars. They're just, I guess, sort of pretty ladies that they just have talked into doffing their kit. And uh. yeah, and they do it for a lot of different movies. Again, no plot, lots of leering camera, lots of just ridiculously perverted male gaze, not even just male gaze, but like the camera's just lingering. You know, they made movies like Lord of the G-Strings. And again, they try to be funny, but they're not. It, it's rough. Spider Babe, The Sexy Adventures of Van Helsing. It's not porn, but it feels almost like amateurish leering and it sort of spun out of this weird mail order have you ever heard of these mail order videos like wave productions and stuff like that yeah, where that was a thing for a while yeah right? yeah so what i think what happened here is wave productions had their cadre of actresses that they used and people would send in their ideas for movies frequently they were weird fetish movies with like women that are giant that would step on men 
very bizarre shit. Oh, boy. I mean, just the weirdest stuff. But anyway. So are you going to confess what idea you definitely sent into these people? <laughs> no, I'll let people guess. <laughs> so every single one that was made, with the possible exception of the output of a filmmaker named Tony Marsiglia, who kind of added, it still had the lesbian sex. It still had the bad acting. But there was some sort of like weird dark art that was happening. He, he did some interesting stuff in Terry West was another filmmaker who was kind of doing some interesting stuff. But just about everybody else that was involved was pretty much just there to make bad jokes while women sort of feigned kissing one another. And it's gross. This is a version of you that I wasn't I wasn't expecting to discover. The one that was like, wait a minute, who are all these naked ladies? That's not okay. It, well, it just... It, it just gets gross after a while because you think about yeah, the intention absolutely. and it's like, okay, we're not making movies. This isn't movie making. What I hear from you repeatedly is it's these creeps that have convinced people to take their yes. clothes off. And if people will keep showing up to your house and taking their clothes off, then you're going to keep letting them do that for as long as they keep showing up, right? That does seem to That's be the really repeated theme is. through all of this. Yeah, but with the, yeah, with the bikini yeah. bloodbath people, they didn't even get them to take their clothes <laughs> off. Right, right. Well, my number three is a lot less of that and actually probably one that maybe more of our audience has come across. It's not an especially inventive thing, but it is in that vein of the title is the idea I'm talking about 2001's Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter, directed by Lee Demabre. A hundred thousand dollars. It's it's about Jesus <laughs> Christ protecting lesbians from vampires in modern Ottawa. <laughs> but Maggie, aren't you a lesbian? No, I'm bi. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> That's it. That's what it's about. He kicks the shit out of some atheists. He teams up with a Mexican wrestler named El Santo. Yeah, you bet. Of course, if you ask me, my co-host is El Santo. True story. There's only There's one. There's only one. But whatever. Okay. I'll just say this. Jesus Christ, Vampire Hunter stops being funny almost as soon as the title card comes up. Because once you're done chuckling at the idea of Jesus Christ fighting vampires, there's still... An hour and 24 minutes of your living, breathing, actual life left to waste. It's too stupid to be offensive, too poorly made to be funny. Worst of all, it's got choreographed musical numbers. No fucking thank you, movie. No fucking thank you. Oh, uh, yeah. It's one of those, like, you put it on with your buddies and laugh because it exists. Yeah. And everybody loses interest after the first beer. For sure. That's definitely something that you'd start out all gung-ho over and then very quickly mm -hmm. realize that none of this is really that much fun. <laughs> so, <you Right>. know, <laughs> that reminds me a little bit of my number two, which similar to my number three and my number four is all about the wrong reasons to make a movie, trying to make a buck by uh, using uh, gorgeous women. Charles Band sort of started out at a higher level and then yeah. just funneled down and down and down and down and down. And basically, Charles Band's post maybe 2,000 output. You will get things like the Evil Bong series, like an entire series right. of movies. Yeah. Evil Bong. You'll get a bunch of racy, you know, naked girl movies like Barbie and Kendra Save the Tiger King. Or The interesting thing about this was this guy had a chance at one point. He was a pretty decent 
well, I don't know if we would say decent, but he was at least a filmmaker with budgets. And I think if you looked at the career that uh, James Cameron had and whereas Cameron mm-hmm. ascended, you know, he's got just these absolutely terrible ones. But I think that the sort of nadir that he hit was with 2020's Corona Zombies. Here we are in the middle of a pandemic and this asshole oh, no. doesn't even credits himself as director, which is hilarious, but he cuts older shitty movies into wraparound segments directed by him with a kind of scantily clad girl that's sort of running from situation to situation. So this Corona Zombies movie really is just, it's repurposing of old footage from Bruno Mattai's Hell of the Living Dead movie from 1980 and another really remarkably shitty movie called Zombies vs. Strippers from 2012. Mm. Charles Band had a career. He did the, <laughs> he did the first troll movie. Trancers, right? Trancer the series. Trancer movie? Yeah, the Trancer series. Yeah. yeah, that was really like one of his big things. Well, he started making all those weed movies. Yeah. Like, isn't there like a ginger weed man or, you know. <laughs> I don't know if all, that's him. He just, yeah. It's mostly know. those uh, evil I'll... bong movies that he made. Yeah. Yeah, Ouija's Halloween Night. That's one. <laughs> oh, Ouija, Ouija's. like a Ouija board? Ouija's, so yeah. Good Lord. Here it is. Come on, man. <laughs> Take a hike. And at that point, see, I don't mind picking. At a certain point, you just got to kind of, you have to just be like, all right, that's, you've you've earned it now. You've earned being yeah. made fun of in yeah. a podcast. So, yeah, Charles Band is my number two. Well, my number two needs to be picked on on a podcast so much so that this movie was an entire film jitsu episode oh. of the old oh, wow. show. 2010's Birdemic oh, Shock I mean, and Terror. Yeah. $10,000. It's a flick that we reviewed on the show because boy, is it fucking terrible. Shockingly, notoriously terrible. This movie isn't as bad as you've heard it was. It's somehow actually worse. It is a seeing is believing situation. I'm not going to waste your time and explain the garbage. It's basically Hitchcock's The Birds, but with like a Windows 95 screensaver. <laughs> There are exploding birds, birds that just kind of rotate in the background. Some of the worst sound mixing you'll ever hear. For me, it isn't a so bad it's good like a lot of people pretend it is. It's a painful brain suck of a movie, (laughs) and I don't ever want to see it again. That's fine. I agree with you 100%. It's tough because that's one of those ones where I think the intention was there. Like there was some intention that was just thoroughly inept. It's like kind of like any Neil Breen movie. Or this. there was one that I saw... Not not long ago at all. It was called something like the Misty Green Sky. The entire thing plays out like some some older middle aged guy's fetish computer generated fetish movie. I feel like I need to take the internet away from you. Why, <laughs> Why am I here? Why are you using the word fetish so much today? What is happening? Face it, man. When you get into no budget cinema, you're you're running into fetish, man. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a fine line. True, but between clever and stupid. I'll tell you, this number one is a departure. I hope from fetish, but it probably isn't. Uh-huh. And that is the entire Faces of Death series. I don't want to say much uh-huh. about John Allen yep. Schwartz. Oh man, and this cash what grab. I mean, it's just a it, it's the grossest kind of cash grab that you can imagine. I mean, you're talking about. You're sort of selling it as a snuff film, even if it isn't, you know, and there Uh are, Uh there are, there's footage of real shit in this movie. Not all of it, not the most offensive parts, not the baby part or anything that was a fake baby. You want to talk about just gross ineptitude and zero taste. There's something like seven versions of this thing, but really 
it frequently is just rehash of the original. I think the worst part of the Faces of Death franchise is that it was effective in doing what it set out to do. Because I can attest to that. I came across a VHS <laughs> copy of that in a video yeah. store back in 1996 when I was a middle school kind of yeah. thing. And my friends and I brought it home and we watched it because I, I think it was designed to be something that grabbed the eyeballs of young people <laughs> who were who were morbidly curious yeah. about what it was. Yeah. It was something clearly, it was marketed as forbidden. I remember putting it on. I remember being really upset yeah, by sure. it. This isn't a scary movie. This is just gross. And I was too young to recognize that not everything in it was yeah, real. Yeah. I, put, I shut Most it down. All, I, I, I don't do think that there was any of us yeah. that at that age, you know, you're talking about young, pretty younger kids and you know yeah, i think sure. that's when I, how old i was i was probably around 12 13 when i ran into it and mm -hmm. i certainly did make it all the way through until i was an adult in college much later uh -huh. when i put it on just to say like what what was this because i kind of wanted to explore it and i realized there was nothing to explore it's garbage it's garbage and it was it's and it's garbage. sold as a movie it's not a movie it's nothing it's all of the worst impulses in humanity thrown out in, in a movie. Faces of Death was the internet before there was yeah, an internet. There you go. It's, 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 yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, it, that's a good pick. What I really hope for our, our folks that are listening, if anybody is still listening at this point, <laughs> uh, I don't want to pique your curiosity with that one. No, really, don't, don't seek it. it out. Leave it alone. It's on this Trust list us. for a reason, people. Come on. Yeah, like, don't, yeah. don't bother. Well, I'm going to bring us home here with my number one because uh, this is also on the list for a reason, but for a very different reason. My number one pick is pretty much here because you bullied me into it. <laughs> when you came up with your bottom five for the last episode, you followed that up in our conversation <laughs> afterwards <did>. by insisting... <laughs> that Bill Hinsman's Flesh, Flesh Eater. Eater was on my list. And so it's here at number Good. one. Flesh Eater was made in 1989 on a budget of $10,000, directed, as I said, by Mr. S. Bill mm -hmm. Hinsman, who our listeners would only know as the graveyard zombie from Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Although you wouldn't really know that unless I told it to you. <laughs> Hinsman made a career off of being that zombie that time. <laughs> And decided to try his hand at the craft. It's almost commendable how completely, utterly, thoroughly, shamelessly this movie is just a ripoff of yeah. The Living Dead. There's not an original idea anywhere in it. But And here's the thing, and this is what people should know. So I watched this movie. I brought this, I think, to your house for our, our bad movie yeah. night. I was like, what is this? Look at, look at this fucking Hinsman thing. <laughs> and so we watched it. We hated it. It was so bad that when I left, I left the DVD under your windshield wipers. Your windshield wipers. I, I left it on your car for you to find the next morning. I think at some point you left it yes. on my car. It changed hands a couple it times. Did. I don't have it, so I think you must somewhere. Mm. But it was it was a movie so bad that we actually like handed it back and forth like the monkey's paw. Yeah, exactly, a few times. it really is the, the the monkey's paw of bad cinema. Flesh Eater sucks. It just sucks. <laughs> But Bill Hinsman should just, he should just go take a flying fuck at a rolling donut. <laughs> I think he, I think he may have. I, I think he's, I think he's gone. Uh, he, oh, is he dead? He's probably dead. Well, maybe this time he'll stay that way. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, apologies to Mr. Hinsman's family. I'm sure he was a treasure. Thank you.
I tell you, we delved deep, 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 deep into the dark underbelly of cinema for those bottom fives. I think right now I need something to recommend to people since we just spent the past 25 minutes or so telling them to stay the fuck away from from their (laughs) televisions. Um, What do you got this week to recommend, Mike, on your staff pick? If I was a more thoughtful and prepared podcast host, (laughs) what I would have done was found a movie that was maybe really big budget that I love to recommend. (laughs) That's what I probably should have done. I didn't, but it is very much the other way because I am recommending this week uh, a movie by my beloved Coen Brothers. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. These guys, to me, are sort of the opposite of of no budget. These are guys who everything they do on screen is just precision. Yeah, meticulous. Perfect. Yeah. All the time. Very meticulous. But I'm going with what I think is sort of uh, often, and I think wrongly considered, lesser Coen Brothers. I'm suggesting that our audience check out 2008's Burn After Reading, hmm. starring George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Francis McDormand, John Malkovich. This is a great Coen Brothers flick that doesn't get a lot of love because it's one of their kind of zanier comedies. People didn't really know what to make of it. And it followed No Country for Old Men. Now, this has happened before with the Coen Brothers because they made Fargo. It swept critical and audience acclaim. It was this major motion picture. It was a big deal. It's a nearly flawless Mm -hmm. film as far as I'm concerned. So all of the world was eagerly anticipating what they did next. And what they did next was Lebowski, right? The big Lebowski, which nobody knew. Yeah, I didn't. And a lot. And, and and of course it wasn't only until after sort of everybody got past the initial shock, right. That they realized, Oh my God, it's it's brilliant. And and now it's this major cult film. It's my favorite movie. Yeah. So there you go. Fair (laughs) enough. Same thing happened here. The Coen brothers put Mm. out no country for old men, a gorgeous capital F film. Yeah. And then they followed it up with this zany uh, hairbrained murder mystery. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think Brad Pitt playing maybe my favorite Brad Pitt performance of all time is Chad, the fitness guru. Francis McDormand is very funny in it. George Clooney in a comedic role that works. He's really good in this. I don't want to say too much about it. What I love was that this movie was almost made in reaction to the response to No Country for Old Men. One mm-hmm. of the big things that people had to say about that, and I think I think it bothered the Coen brothers because they didn't hear it so much from the critics, but definitely from their general audiences. It's, it's a movie that ends very abruptly, right? Oh, it yeah. doesn't explain everything. It doesn't, it doesn't draw all its conclusions. It doesn't tie the movie up in a nice bow. It ends. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were really thrown by that. And so there's this great bit at the end of Burn After Reading where the movie has happened. And <laughs> the characters are now sitting in a room literally saying, well, what did we learn from all that? I mean, yeah. it's in this movie. It's it's yeah. it's it's funny. Certainly not low budget. And, and I think watching the Coen brothers who are master tacticians when it comes to what they do with their camera, what they do with their script, the performances they get from their actors who they legendarily will coach down to the ums and ahs mm-hmm. they want word for word for word it's a really funny movie that i love so I, i'm sure you've seen fargo you've you've seen the big lebowski you should absolutely check out burn after reading says you says me no you know you're right that's your staff pick your staff pick are you gonna tell me george clooney's dildo chair isn't fucking hilarious oh god here we go with the dildo chair again All wonderful right. wonderful stuff my staff pick this week 
Well, let's just say that filmmaker Joe Berlinger, Joe Berlinger, he's been kicked around a lot for uh, his much loathed Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, uh, a movie that tried and apparently failed miserably to follow up the found footage phenomenon of the Blair Witch Project. Uh, look, I didn't Recently even see that. Recently on a bottom five list for me. I thought it was on your bottom five somewhere. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I don't know which one, but I thought you had mentioned it. I've never seen it. So I, I'm wow. actually really curious about it um, because I've heard some people say it was interesting. So uh, I'm, I'm curious to see where I'm going to la land on that one because, you know, I liked I Am a Ghost. So we'll see. But anyway, <laughs> sure. Berlinger actually had a, has had a really successful career as a documentary filmmaker. And it's led to a great deal of accolades, including an Academy Award nomination. He's got eight Emmy nominations. He's won an Emmy and he's won a Peabody Award. So, I mean, the guy isn't a slouch. In 2021, he piloted out this new series for Netflix called Crime Scene, and, and there's uh, one four-episode piece of that called The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. It's, uh, I guess it would probably be about four hours long. Uh -huh. He could have phoned this in, right? It's a true crime documentary. It's for Netflix, but it's stylish. And it's really interesting. It's the story about a young Asian Canadian woman who's gone missing after a stay in a notorious Skid Row hotel in L.A. And I'll tell you, it's it's as thoughtful as it is twisty. It's also really, really eerie because Berlinger's working with this really creeptastic pot of gold when it comes to this story's biggest draw, which is this elevator video of the missing woman. Elisa Lamb acting very, very weird and how that video was the last that anyone ever saw of her before she disappeared. I think the video is one of the more unsettling things I've ever seen. And the way Berlinger works with this video, analyzes it, has voice over the video, kind of explaining her actions as she's making them. It's truly terrifying in many respects. What's really interesting about the series, like I said, is it's it's very thoughtful as well, and it actually carries a great deal of emotion by the end of it. This was a rewatch for me where I had watched it, I think, in early 2021 when it came out and then recently had watched it again this past week. And I have to say, it was even more resonant this time in its dealing with the topic of people who are bipolar and what their behavior can be and when they get off their meds, how they can be and the certain levels that there are to bipolar. I found it very emotional. I found that the reading of her Tumblr blog, which is still out on the internet, you can still see the archives of her writings, really gave you a sense of who Elisa Lam was as a person. And I think Berlinger didn't want to go into an exploitive mode with this. It seemed like he was genuinely interested in honoring the person who died and sort of looking past the video, looking past the story of the hotel and all the red herrings involved and instead wanted to bring humanity to it. So I give him big ups for that. I give this whole series a lot of credit for doing something different with something that could have been very, very gross. And in fact, very much the antithesis of that bottom five that I gave. Jason, it's that time. <laughs> now I get to reveal what movie you're going to be watching for our next episode. I talk with you a lot about what I call our mixtape. 
Yes. The the episodes that we do and, and kind of what our sensibilities are for our, why we pick each one, what film proceeds and follows the next. And I realized something. Our last few episodes have been missing something. Something that is foundational to film jitsu. It's been missing a little bit of that fuck you. It's been missing a little yeah, bit of that yeah. vitriol, right? We've yeah. we've been a little bit more interested in each other's reactions than actually just throwing a punch. It's True. been a while since we just maybe since Mandy that that somebody oh, made you a true son of a bitch dick move. Well, yeah, that was dicky. So now it's my turn, and I thought, you know what? It, it's t- it's time to light a fire <sighs> here. Here we go. I, and so I want to put a firecracker in the mailbox and run away. And I thought, boy, what what better way to do that to Jason than a movie with one of his absolute favorite actors. A movie from 1994. It has Frank Langella in it. He's not the young actor in the movie. Because the lead in the film Brain Scan is Mr. Edward Eddie Furlong. Furlong. Yeah. Jesus Christ. You love you Edward suck. Furlong. You, you suck. love Edward Furlong so much. Oh. He's your favorite. And I thought, you know... Gee whiz, if only there was like an hour and a half movie where Edward Furlong is in basically every scene. Wouldn't Ugh. Jason love something like that? This is a movie directed by a guy named John Flynn about a teenager who is part of, he gets this interactive virtual reality game. <laughs> he goes into the game, starts killing people, finds out what's happening in the game is happening in real life. It's like free Jack virtuosity bullshit. Yeah. We were just, we were just discovering the internet. And so we were starting to get those techno horror films, lawnmower man man and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's in there. So it is definitely a time capsule for 1994, but what it really is, is an hour and a half of Edward Furlong. Can't stop thinking about that fateful day that the casting director for Terminator two walked into that goddamn arcade and saw that idiot playing a game and thought, yeah, this guy, this is the savior of fucking humanity. Yep. Here we go. So you're going to get to watch him. He's going to, he acts his whole face off this whole time. Don't worry. Oh, I'm sure he acts. This movie, I want you to know, was in theaters for two weeks. Wow. It was such a critical and financial flop. It got pulled after two weeks. (laughs) I cannot wait yeah. For you to spend time with this movie and, and talk to me about uh, about Brain Scan. Our bottom five, I think it only makes sense, is we're going to do our bottom five games. Oh, okay. Do with that what you will, right? This yeah. the whole movie is about a VR game. And I thought like computer games, video games, eh. Yeah, games. Our bottom five games. I don't know if we want to call dibs on the game with uh michael douglas well i don't know if we need to just this is maybe michael it. douglas i did too but it's a bad game right this is how i always form my bad. list yes that's this a very is how you bad that's a bottom the games five you game. don't want to play the games yep, yep. i don't want to play but you of yep. course do what you want with that maybe our audience <laughs> will play along at home i secretly love this movie it is like a total guilty pleasure of mine so maybe i will I, too i might rewatch it i might rewatch it just to, to giggle at how much i know you're hating it <laughs> I really am not looking forward to this, but I'm going to get you back, man. I'm going to get you back next week. I'm going to get you. See, and here we are. We're film jitsu once again. This is what I'm going for. So uh, with that, I think we are ready to wrap things up here today. Thank you to everybody for listening. I hope you'll come back and join us next week when Jason watches John Flynn's 1994 (laughs) computer game murder mystery. I don't really know. 
Brain Scan. As always, we have been your hosts. I am Mike. I am Jay. We'll see you next time. A ghost story three-way? That's not... We're not... A goat. Nope. Mm-mm. Meg Ryan would like that. That's the wrong kind of movie. That's the ghost wrong boning. sort of no budget. <laughs> Meg Ryan in ghost Meg boning. Ryan, noted ghost boner. We were dangerously close to sounding like grown-ups for a second there. I'm glad we managed for a to second. circle Good it on back started... to ghost boning. <laughs> talking about ghost boning we are on brand if nothing else <laughs> <laughs>